Romans chapter 16, 1 to 2. For a sermon I've entitled, Phoebe, that's the woman's name, and the role of women in church. Here's what it says. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church which is in Centria, that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and that you help her in whatever matters she may have need of you, for she herself has also been a helper of many and of myself as well. You know, last week I was at a graduation party for one of my cousins, his son, and uh, lately, the only time I see my relatives is at funerals, so it was nice to get together on a happy occasion rather than a sad one. While we were eating, somebody there, one of my cousins, asked about my kids and how they're doing, and I mentioned that Nathan had just gotten back from Europe, where he had been the last couple of years, and uh, he recently uh, moved back home. And I also told them that before he had left, my son had bought a car. But uh, of all the miles that are on the car, probably less than 500 of them he put on, my wife has actually been the one who's driven it. And then I said this to my cousins. I said, you know, I told Suzanne that I didn't want us driving the car unless we needed to because we really shouldn't be racking up all these miles on his car. Now, Nathan, my son, heard this and said, it's my car, Dad. She can drive it if she wants to. And I responded to him saying, yeah, but she's my wife, and she can't drive it if I said she can't. Now, I was relating that as a humorous story, but one of my cousins, uh, a woman who's about 66 years old, got a surprised look on her face, and she said, you don't mean you believe in that submission stuff, do you? Now, this woman who attends the mainline church and has political views very much on the left, so she was, uh, I should say, I wasn't surprised that she took umbrage with what I said. But then another one of my cousins who was there, a sister to this woman, said, you know, know, we don't want to get into an argument about this. To which I responded, yes, we do, because you're my cousins, and I love you, and when we're all done arguing, you'll still be my cousins, and I'll love you. And then I started my argument with a question. If God created us, do you think, who do you think would know better how marriages are supposed to work? Like God or Oprah? At that point, all five of my cousins We're sitting and beginning to listen. I continued. What does the Bible actually say about the way men are to treat wives? It tells them to love your wives and to live with them in an understanding way, showing them honor as to a more delicate vessel. Don't wives want husbands who love them and try to understand them and treat them with respect? She said, well, yeah, they do. Mine didn't. So the problem is that they failed to do what the Bible said. And what does it tell wives? It tells them to submit to their husbands and show them respect. The man is supposed to be the leader in the marriage. I said, don't guys want their wives to respect them? And my two male cousins who were sitting there started nodding their head yes. Do you really want, as a woman, to be married to a guy you can run over? I mean, do you want to be married to a weak man? The head of the two women who were there started nodding no. I had a woman, I said, told me one time that if her husband, her first husband, would have stood up to her, she thought that they could have stayed married. But the longer she ran over him, the more contempt she had for him. And eventually she said, I couldn't stand him. I said, well, when I do counseling, marriage counseling, I'll always ask the wife this question. I said, have you ever tried to change your husband? Yeah, I've tried. He won't change. And I turned to the husband and I said, you ever tried to change your wife? Yeah, she never listens to anything. Okay, so both of you have tried to change the other and it hasn't worked. Is that what you're saying? Yes. I said, let's try something different. How about you commit to changing yourself 
and see if that will do it. And then I lay out a plan where they start to fulfill the roles that God has given for husbands and wives and commit to taking actual action steps where they start to treat each other the way the Bible commands husbands to treat their wives and wives to treat their husbands. And it's amazing how when they start treating each other in the way that God says, their marriage gets much better. Now, it's interesting. Of the five cousins who are sitting there, all of them siblings, four of them had been divorced and one of them had never been married. They had done marriage their own way and it hadn't worked. What if they had done it God's way? Now, that was a good conversation. But I ask you a question. Why do you think my cousin took offense with what I said? Well, for one reason, it was personal. She had been married twice, and her second husband was a Vietnam vet who had all kinds of emotional issues from the war. But the other reason is because she's bought into uh, the influence of the feminist movement and its ideology, which says there are no role distinctions between men and women. And that idea of submission in marriage, well, as the feminists see it, marriage is an oppressive institution, and to submit would be a form of slavery. Well, it's not just that God, or many deny God's design for wives and husbands and marriage. They also get offended with what the Bible says about the role of women in church. Not only secular people on the outside get offended by what God says, but even many in the church are offended and so seek to undermine the clear teaching of Scripture. Now, our passage today only speaks of one woman, Phoebe. But it does touch on the issue of the role of women in churches, So today we want to consider what Paul actually says about Phoebe, and then we want to look more widely at what the scripture actually says about this issue of the role of women in church. So why don't we get into the text after we pray. Our Father and God, I do pray for grace and mercy in this one. Uh, This is controversial to many people. It's incredibly offensive to a lot, but it's what your word says, and we want to understand it because we want to be pleasing to you. So bless us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, several questions we want to ask and answer today. Here's the first one. Who is Phoebe? It's a simple question. Who is Phoebe? Secondly, what role did she play in her church? And third, what role can women play in church? What role are they supposed to play? So who is Phoebe? You know, in the Bible, there's a lot of people who are spoken of that they have a lot of ink written about them. I mean, the book of Genesis, which character covers the most of Genesis, you know? Abraham. Who would be second? Joseph. Some people, though, they're named just once, and there may be just a small note about them. In Nehemiah chapter 3, we're given a list of people who worked on rebuilding the wall in Jerusalem. In verse 20, we read this. Next to him, Barak, the son of Zabbai, zealously repaired the section from the angle to the entrance of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. We don't know anything about this guy except for that he worked on the wall and that he, above all others, worked zealously. That's a nice thing to have recorded in God's word. Some people play important roles, but they're not even recorded by name. Do you remember that young Israelite girl who had been taken captive to Syria? She ended up being a servant in the household of Naaman, the Syrian, captain of the guard. Uh, He was a proud and powerful man, but he was also a leper. It says that one day, while she was working, the young girl said to Naaman's wife, she said, you know, if only my master would see the prophet in Samaria, he'd cure him of his leprosy. This is an amazing thing. She's kidnapped and enslaved, and nevertheless she's concerned and has compassion for her master. She also believes that surely if Naaman would go to Israel to see the prophet of God, he would heal him of his disease. She had faith in God that he was so good that he would heal even one of Israel's enemies if they were to ask. Well, her name is not recorded in the Bible, 
but her name is recorded in the Lamb's Book of Life. And God will someday reward her for her service because you know what? It wasn't just that Naaman got healed from his leprosy. Naaman was saved in an answer to her prayers. Well, Phoebe's mentioned by name here, but Paul doesn't reveal much about her. But what he says is significant. Look what he writes. He says, I commend you to you, our sister Phoebe, who's a servant, the word's deaconess, of the church, which is Centria. Now, her name Phoebe is a Greek feminine version of the masculine Phoebus, which means bright or shining. And evidently, Paul thought she lived up to her name. He uh, writes to, uh, to commend her, he says, pointing her out with a favorable approval. And in a sense, he's entrusting her to them as she's going there. Now, we don't know much about her background, but the commentators make educated guesses, and I think they're pretty good. One is that she was probably either widowed or unmarried. I say that because she's not mentioned as having a husband. And women in those times didn't generally travel by themselves. So it's possible she was widowed, or perhaps her husband was an unbeliever and wasn't with her. It's also likely that she was a wealthy woman. Well, where do we get that from? Well, look at the end of verse 2. It says, For she herself has been a helper of many and of myself as well. Now, the Greek word used for helper here is prostesis, and the ESV translates this word as patron. A patron is a, a wealthy person who gives support to an individual or some particular project. When I was at Northwestern College down in the cities, they put up a new building called the Totino Fine Arts Center. Now, if you th hear the word Totino, you probably think of what? Pizza, you're right. And actually, it was Rose Totino who gave the money. Rose and James Totino started a pizza shop down in Minneapolis years ago, and it turned into the Totino Pizza Company. And uh, after her husband died, she gave a large amount of money to Northwestern. She became a patron of the college. Or think of another fam famous patroness, uh, Selena Hastings, the uh, Countess of Huntington. She was a wealthy woman from an aristocratic, aristocratic family. That's a hard word to say. We were talking about, we, <laughs> I'm not even going to get into that. We started talking about words and the meanings of them and laughed and laughed all morning yesterday, didn't we? I, I won't record what we said because we sounded pretty silly. <laughs> there you go. Anyway, she was a wealthy woman from a uh, rich family. And after her husband died, she spent all kinds of money on evangelistic causes. She paid to have uh, a hospital erected, and there were 64 chapels that she gave money to build. She financed a number of missionaries, and she was a supporter and friend of John Wesley and George Whitfield and the hymn writer Isaac um, Watts. Uh, the British historian uh, Horace Waypole described her as the patriarchess of the Methodists. She was pivotal in the evangelical revival in England. Now, she gave away some $100,000 in her lifetime. That would be the equivalent of $200 million today. The Roman Catholic John Henry Newman, commenting on her life after she died, praised her saying this, listen, she devoted herself, her means, her time, her thoughts to the cause of Christ. She did not spend her money on herself. She did not allow the homage paid to her rank to remain with herself. Now, somebody asked the countess one time, of all the blessings that she had, what was she most thankful for? She said, I'm thankful for the letter M. The letter M? Yeah, the letter M. So why the letter M? So because Paul in 1 Corinthians talks about uh, those who God has chosen to be saved. And he said this, For consider your calling, brethren. Not many of you are wise. Not many, according to worldly standings. Not many are powerful. Not many are of noble birth. She said, if it weren't for the letter M, it would say not any of noble birth. And she said, I wouldn't be saved. 
said, I'm thankful for the letter M. Evidently, Phoebe, like Rose Tur uh, Totino and Countess of Huntington, were willing to give, knowing that they're storing up treasure in heaven. Well, let's second point then. What role did she play in her church? Paul calls her a servant of the church in Centria. Now, Centria was a city near Corinth, and Paul was writing the book of Romans from Corinth. It's most likely that she was the one delivering the letter of the Ro to the Romans, uh, and that's why she was going there. And one person re remarked on this. They said, actually, the whole Protestant Reformation was in her luggage that day. <laughs> that's true. Now, the question arises, though, from Paul calling Phoebe a diakonos. It's a word that comes into English as deacon. Now, because it's applied to a woman, the RSV translates it a deaconess. Now, a diakonos uh, means servant, but it's also the, the word that's used for a specific office in the Bible called deacon. Do you remember in the book of Acts? The church, uh, the people were coming to the apostles complaining about the fact that there were certain widows that weren't being taken care of. And uh, they said, you know, it, it's not right for us to neglect the ministry of the word and prayer in order to wait on table. So why don't you guys pick some people, pick seven men, godly men filled with the spirit who you trust to put them in charge of this. And they were the first deacons in the church. And this was the office of deacon when it was first instituted. Now, turn over to the book of Philippians chapter 1 real quick. And I want you to notice who Paul writes this letter to. Philippians chapter 1. See what it is? I think it's verse 2. It says, Paul's writing, he says, To all, listen to this, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers, that's pastors, and deacons. So the two offices in the church instituted in the New Testament are elders or pastors and deacons. Now here's the question. Did Phoebe hold an official position in the church in Centria? And if so, doesn't that tell us that women can be leaders in the church and fulfill any role, including those of pastors? No, 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 say some. Women aren't to lead in the church, so therefore you should translate the word servant because it does mean servant. Because otherwise Paul would be contradicting what he says about the role of women elsewhere in the church. Now, so did Phoebe have an official role as a deaconess in the church of Centria, or was Paul just simply saying she's a good servant from that church? Can a woman be a deaconess, or is that role reserved for men? And if women are allowed to be deaconess, isn't that a position of authority? And therefore, indicate that women can be in positions of authority in church. Now, I have to say, before we answer that question, I have to make a full disclosure at this point. I was born in a hospital in Minneapolis called Deaconess Hospital. So was the rest of my siblings. So I have a vested interest in answering this question, lest it show that uh, my siblings and myself had illegitimate births. I don't want that to be the case, but let's look what it says. So what is the role of women in the church? By the way, just to ask that question offends plenty of people. How dare you suggest there should be any differences? I'm not suggesting it. We'll see what God has to say. All right, now turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Here Paul's going to lay out for Timothy the qualifications for these two offices, overseers and deacons. And like I said, the term overseer is the equivalent of pastor or elder. They're used interchangeably in the New Testament. Look at what he says. It's a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of an overseer, that means like a pastor like me, it's a fine work he desires to do. 
An overseer then must be, and he gives his qualifications, must be above reproach, the husband of but one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, that means a guy likes to smack people, but gentle and peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his own children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so they will not become conceited or fall into the condemnation or incur the, by the devil. And he must be, have a good reputation with those outside the church, so he will not fall into the reproach and the snare of the devil. Now notice what's emphasized is the character of the person. The only two skills that are listed here is he has to be able to teach and he has to be able to manage his own household. He doesn't have to be a business executive, a marketing strategist. He doesn't have to be an expert entertainer. All he has to do is teach the word of God and be a person of noble character. And doesn't this one verse, by the way, where it says that he has to be the husband of one wife, do away with the Roman Catholic doctrine that priests cannot be married? In the Roman Catholic Church, Sexual sin among the priests, including homosexuality, is rampant. But you know, it's interesting, the Greek Orthodox Church, you don't find that so much. Now, neither Roman Catholicism nor Greek Orthodox Church teach a true gospel, so these people are unsaved. Why then would there be more in the Roman Catholic Church than in the Greek Orthodox Church? Because in the Greek Orthodox Church, the priests are allowed to marry. In the Catholic Church, they're not. Now, Paul goes on. I want you to see the next group he talks to. Deacons, verse 8, likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men must be first tested and let them serve as deacons if they're beyond reproach. Now, see, some would say, look, it specifically says that they have to be the, you know, men. So this should settle the issue. And I think a strong case can be made for that just from verse 8. But what happens when we go on to the next verse? It says this, women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Now here's a question. Who are the women he's speaking of here? It's in the context of those who hold positions in the church, right? So he's not just talking about women in general. That wouldn't make sense. But here's the question. Is he talking about a separate position called deaconess? Or is he talking about the wives of the deacons? Now some people say, well, it's the wives of the deacons. Because the word can mean woman, or sometimes translated wife. And say, what they would argue is this, they said, look, these are the wives of the deacons. Deacons would go around, they, they do the practical work of the church, the care work, and that kind of stuff. And if they were going around with their wives, it would be very, very important that their wives know how to keep their mouths shut and not divulge things that was told to them in secret. I think that's pretty good interpretation. But here's the problem with that. If that's the correct interpretation and women are not allowed to be deaconess, and Paul's only talking about their wives here, why is there no commands to the wives of the elders? I mean, elders' wives are involved in ministry as well. It would make sense, though, if Paul's talking about elders, talking about deacons, puts a special reference in there to deaconesses, warning them of the danger of being gossips, and then going back to the position of deacon to fill out the rest of them. So if Paul's speaking of deacons' wives, it's kind of strange that he doesn't mention elders' wives. If, on the other hand, he's talking about it as a separate role and position, then it would make sense. But someone responded at this point. They said, look, yeah, but in our church, we have a pastor and a board of deacons. They're the ones who run the church. So obviously, if women can be deacons, that wouldn't be right because then they would be running the church and Paul's going to say elsewhere that that's not what should be done. Well, here's how I'd respond to that. I'd say, yeah, Paul does say, and we're going to look at it in just a minute, 
that uh, women are not supposed to teach and exercise authority over men in the church. But the problem is that you call your leaders deacons instead of elders. The Bible makes it clear that the church is to be led by a plurality of elders, not a single pastor, a group of deacons with a group of deacons to support. By the way, Jonathan Edwards had this problem. In their church, it was designed like many Baptist churches are today, where you'd have a single pastor and a number of deacons who support him. And when he got into trouble with his church and they started to get a lot of pushback from members of his church, he reflected on that and said that the mistake of having that as opposed to a plurality of elders made it much more difficult for him to do his job. Let me give you two quick verses that give an indication that all churches are supposed to have a plurality of elders. Here's the first one. Titus 1.5 says this. For this reason, Paul's writing, I left you in Crete, that you had set in order the things that remain and that you had appoint elders, plural, in every city as I directed you. Or Acts 14.23 says this. When they had appointed elders in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord and those who had believed. So in both of those passages, notice there's a plurality. By the way, why would you want to have more than one pastor? So he doesn't get a big, huge ego and because there's wisdom in numbers and because it's a lot harder to attack all the elders than it is to attack one pastor. I mean, if you say, well, Pastor Doug's like this, 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 and this, some of those complaints are going to be right. But all the elders are like this, 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 and that. That's a little harder to believe. Well, I remember, though, being at a conference meeting uh, for the denomination that we used to be in. And the district superintendent was doing a seminar on church governance. How is the church supposed to be governed? Uh, The guy's last name was Erickson. And I remember him saying this. You know, the Bible Bible doesn't give any specific form of church governance. So I'm going to give you the Ericksonian philosophy. Now, I didn't know when he said that whether I was more bothered by his ignorance or his arrogance. His ignorance because the Bible does tell us how a church is supposed to be governed. Or his arrogance because he thought that he should give us his philosophy as a substitute. Now, turn back to 1 Timothy chapter 2. This is where it gets uh, sticky for some people. Starting with verse 8, where Paul gives some specific instructions for men and women in the church. Here's what it says. Therefore, Paul's writing to the men first. He says, Therefore I want men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath or dissension. So he tells, tells them that the most important thing he wants them to do, the men in the church, is to pray. That's why our church does a prayer and fasting once a month. That's why we get together every Saturday, the guys, to pray. He goes on to say this. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly, discreetly, not with braided hair and gold pearls and costly garments. In other words, don't Go all out on your looks externally, but rather by means of good works as proper for women making claim to godliness. A woman, listen, it says, a woman must <clears throat> quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet, for it was Adam who was created first and then Eve, and it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Uh, now here, Paul uses that Terrible word again, submissiveness. That's supposed to be the attitude that women are supposed to come to church with. Paul forbids a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man in the church. Now let me ask some questions. How do the theologians in the churches get around this apparent clear teaching from the Apostle Paul? Well, the first thing they say is they say, well, you have to understand, Paul was just a bigot, a sexist bigot. I mean, he failed to shed his ideas held over from the time he was a Jewish rabbi. He was held captive by the spirit of his age, unable to break free from his backward ideals. Or perhaps those who disagree with him today are held captive by the spirit of our age. 
Who do you think was selling out to the culture? Paul at that time? Or the church leaders at this time? Some try to argue that these commands only applied to the women of that particular time and that particular place. I mean, women were not educated, they said. So Paul was saying, well, women shouldn't be teaching in the church right now because of their lack of biblical knowledge. But later on, when they're up to par with the men, then it would be fine for them to teach and exercise authority over men. But Paul doesn't say anything about education, does he? And if that were the issue, wouldn't that apply to men as well, that they're not educated, they shouldn't be teaching? Is it bad to have women who are biblically uninformed lead the church, but it's okay to have men who are biblically uninformed lead the church? It's ridiculous. Others say this. They say, well, look, Paul was writing to the Timothy who was in Ephesus at the time. Now, Ephesus had a temple there with sacred prostitution. No doubt some of those prostitutes were converted and came into the church, and evidently Paul was concerned that these women might employ their former skills learned from their past occupation to worm their way into leadership in the church. I actually read that one that said, that's absurd. Where are they getting any of that from? So the denomination, as I mentioned, that we used to be part of, started ordaining women back in 1976. At that time, it was argued that it was just a matter of Christian conscience and every church had to decide for themselves on this issue and it wasn't right for you to push your views on another church. Okay? Fast forward today, you can't be ordained in that church unless you support the idea of women pastors. There was one pastor at that time who told me, he said, you know, you can't, you're not going to get in trouble in this church for being a heretic, but you are going to get in trouble in this church and denomination if you don't support women pastors. So the denomination put out a position paper defending their uh, view. They dealt with what Paul said here in 1 Timothy, and they went through the text trying to reinterpret what Paul said, and then they were dishonest in the process because they don't even address the true reasons that Paul gives why he doesn't allow this. What are those two reasons? Look what it says in verse 3. For it was Adam, Paul gives two reasons why he doesn't allow a woman to teach and exercise authority over men in church. For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. So Paul gives two reasons for his restriction on women teaching and exercising authority over men. The first one is the order of creation, and the second is the nature of the fall. Now, either, are either of those cultural? Are either of those historical time-bound? No. Eve was created to be a helpmate to Adam. According to Paul, while there's equality between men and women in marriage, there's still a hierarchy. Addressing some of the women in the church in Corinth who were trying to throw off gender roles. They were doing it back then, too. In chapter 11, verse 2 to 3, he says this. Now, I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions that I delivered to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, the man is the head of the woman, and God is the head of, the, of Christ. So listen to what I'm saying. There's equality in the Trinity among the persons of the Trinity, and yet there's an order in it. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. There's equality in marriage between men and women, but there's an order. Now, as I said, Oprah might disagree, but God's opinion should carry more weight. I, I remember doing a Bible study on this in 1 Corinthians, and I had a little cartoon comic on the front. It's a woman, she's laying on a couch, and she's looking up at her psychologist, her psychiatrist, her therapist, and she says, Doctor, I don't know what's wrong with me. The more I act like a man, the less I feel like a woman. Now, we're living in a time where you have a Supreme Court justice who's asked by a senator, could you define for me what a woman is? And she said, no, Senator, I can't because I'm not a biologist. 
If you can't define what a woman is, as opposed to a man is, how can you even begin to talk about roles of women and men? Well, the second reason that Paul gives, though, is because of the nature of the fall. Paul points out that it wasn't Adam who was deceived by the serpent in the garden, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Now, let me ask some questions. This is a painful one. Is Paul saying that in spiritual matters, it's easier to deceive women than men? What do you think? It looks like it, doesn't it? I mean, why did Satan go to the woman, not the man? Is it because he tossed the coin and came up head and said, I guess I go to the woman? Or is it because he thought she might be an easier mark? Listen to the way men and women talk. See how many times you'll hear a guy start his statement by, well, I think this, I think that. Usually opinionated, right? How many times will you hear a woman start her statements by, well, I feel this way or I just feel that way? Why is that the case? Because women, for women, the emotional is more dominant than the logical. You tell a woman a heart-wrenching story and she will be moved to accept a position more than reciting statistics and giving well-reasoned arguments. Let me ask you a question. As a whole, who would you guess is more supportive of homosexuality, men or women? The polls say that women are more supportive. Why would that be the case? It should be equally repulsive if you think homosexuality is wrong. I think it's because the homosexual lobby has done a very good job at painting themselves as the victims of hate crime and bigotry. And I think that women are generally more compassionate and caring than men. And so if you can bring a tale of discrimination and rejection and hurt feelings, more women than men will jettison their views in order to reaffirm that person. God wants us to be loving, right? So one time I was working at the dairy. A lady who I worked with, Linda, she's my coworker. And uh, Linda was a, she was a go-getter. She was a weightlifter. She had been married a couple of times. She was successful in the things that she had done. For some reason, she was uh, talking to somebody who was in the break room. I had a conversation with earlier, and we were talking about this issue. And she came back. I could tell she was mad at me. I thought, what did I do? I didn't say anything. But she told me, she said, do you really believe that women cannot be pastors in churches? I said, well, whether I believe it or not, it's not significant. I said, that's what the Bible actually teaches. And she was very offended by it, which is odd. She doesn't go to church. <laughs> what did she make her? But so I tried to talk her through it. I had a good relationship. I said, Linda, let me ask you a question. I said, sometimes I have to preach a message where I know what I'm going to say that day is going to offend people. They're going to leave. I'm not going to see them again. And I said, that's happened to me with some of my friends. I said, if you were to have to preach a message and you knew there was a lady in the audience that day who was a good friend of yours, 30-year friend, and you knew that that would be the end of that friendship, would you still preach that message? She said, no. I said, that's why you can't be a pastor. Because women put relationships above almost anything, and that's because God made them that way. But relationships cannot be put above the truth. And she said, well, that makes sense. Eh, that was fine for the rest of the day. <laughs> I want to tell you something, though. The churches that allow women pastors eventually embrace homosexuality as well. Why? Because having rejected God's roles for men and women, they all end up rejecting God's roles for sexuality. If they will not let God decide what goes on in the marriage or in the church, neither are they going to let God decide what goes on in the bedroom. By the way, we're, we're a Southern Baptist church, at least for right now. At the last annual meeting, just a couple days ago, 
Rick Warren, a well-known evangelical pastor, largest, uh, one of the largest churches in America, part of the Southern Baptist denomination, their church last year ordained three women as pastors. According to the Baptist Faith and Message, which is the official position, uh, theological position for the Southern Baptist Church that you have to sign up on, um, you're not allowed to do that. And so they were going to disfellowship him. There was a move to ask that their church be removed. Rick Warren, who um, retired this year, decided to show up for it. And he started by saying, um, you know what, I was always telling my kids, my grandkids, that you know what, you're most like Christ when you don't defend yourself. So I'm not here to do that. And then he got up and started defending himself. He talked about how uh, there's 160 Southern Baptist churches in California, and 100 of them were started by his church. And then he pointed out that he's actually, their church has trained a million pastors, more than all the, or all the seminaries of the denomination put together. You really believe he trained a million pastors? There's not a million pastors in America. Okay, so then he went on and on. And then he made this comment. He said, look, he said, we need to keep the primary issues the primary issues and not fight over the secondary issues. What he said is whether God says this or not is secondary, right? So what did they decide to do? They're going to appoint a committee and study it. All right, let's, let's bring this back to our text today and see what we can learn and what we learn. Here's the first question. Uh, did Phoebe hold an office of deaconess in the church or was she just an outstanding servant? It's hard to know from this text, but the office of deaconess is seen really early in the church. The deaconess is, according to the historians, what they gleaned from the church fathers, helped to visit the poor, take care of the sick, take in abandoned babies. They counseled women. They helped instruct them in the faith and prepared them for baptism. Number two, should women be deaconesses in church then? Yes, we have deaconesses in our church. If that work is that kind of caring work that we just mentioned, yeah, the truth is, whether they have an official position or not, women are doing this work in almost every church. Number three, can women be pastors or elders of the church, like Rick Warren thinks? My answer is, I suppose they can, but they won't be doing it with God's approval, but rather against his expressed command and prohibition. Sometimes you'll hear a woman pastor say this, well, God has gifted me to preach. How dare you deny my right to do so? No, God has not gifted you to disobey him. And the fact that you cannot correctly interpret the Bible shows that neither you as a woman or a man who holds that position is qualified to teach. Women do not need to pretend to be men or fill men's roles to have significance and value in the church. They have value. Goodness sakes, our church couldn't survive without women. And we certainly would never accomplish half of what we do. They can even teach other women. We have women in our church who teach Bible studies. We have half of our Sunday school teachers are women. But if they want to be like Phoebe, women worthy of commendation, they need to engage in ministry as God intends. I don't know if I convinced my cousin, who I still love, but she's not a Christian. But if you are a Christian, you know that the Bible teaches this, and you know we should follow what the Scripture says. May God's people, both men and women, accept the roles that he's given us, rejoice in them so that we can be blessings to others. Let's pray. Our Father and God, like I said, I, you know, this one's going to go over the internet and there's going to be people who are going to be offended when they hear this. People offended by just about everything. And they're certainly offended by the cross and the idea that we can't save ourselves. It's only through the death of your son that we can. But Lord, we have to teach what the Bible actually says. And you know better than we do what works what doesn't. 
So, Father, I pray that you'd give grace and mercy to us. Help the men in this church to show great respect and honor, not only to the women in the church, but especially to their own wives, because a lot of us have failed in that. And, Father, I pray for the wives in the church and the women. I thank you for them, because this is not a problem in our church. We've got women who love you, and that's why they follow you. So bless us now, all of us, in Jesus' name. Amen.